Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. And it's pretty amazing that we're actually moving our way through the first five books of the Bible pretty well. I mean, we've done Genesis, we've done Exodus, we've done Leviticus, and we're over halfway through Numbers. And that just leaves Deuteronomy. So... I'm just blown away that we're actually doing it. I mean, how many churches get to go through the first five books? So I'm just thrilled about that. So we'll be looking, we'll be looking at all of Numbers 21 this morning, and it's going to be a great time. I'm uh, really excited about it, and so I'll begin with prayer, and we'll uh, time myself here, and so then we'll get going. All right. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be able to be here. We're reminded of what we read when we read Psalm 27 together. One thing I ask and I seek, that I may dwell in the house of my Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty. And that is what we are doing now. We, the house of the Lord, are here And we pray that you would show us your beauty. We want to see your glory. We want to see that you are worth everything. We want to once again remember that you are our God. And there is nothing that we lack if we have you. Thank you for your son. Thank you that if we look to him, we will live. And we pray this in his name. So June 6, 2019, was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. 75th anniversary of D-Day. It's also my parents' anniversary. Um, 75 years ago, June 6, 1944, the Allied troops invaded the Allied, the Axis powers, you know, Germany and his... Hitler and his Nazi regime, and they invaded on Normandy Beach there in France. And the Allied powers, largest amphibious invasion ever. In one day, roughly 156,000 people went from from the water to the land. You catch that? I don't know how many people are in Albany, but it might not be that many. 156,000 people in a day went from the water to the land. These troops came from the United States, Canada, Britain, and exiled Frenchmen. And they landed on five beaches, which were nicknamed Sword, Juno, Gold, Omaha, and Utah. And they fought with their lives. And many of them died. The estimates are about 4,500 men died. And most of those were Americans, actually. Many more wounded. It's actually a story in the paper recently, in the Post-Star, about a man from Whitehall who was there. Henry Gurney. I wonder if you saw this in the Post-Star. I read through portions of it, and it was really pretty fascinating. So he's 94, and I think he's in Whitehall to this day. So I don't know if you know Mr. Gurney. Um... The news article said this, 
um, about Mr. Gurney, who actually landed the next day, June 7th, said that he was loaded down with 60 pounds of ammunition and gear. The 19-year-old Whitehall High School graduate was chest deep in water, his rifle held high over his head. As he plunged toward the blood-scarred beach, he heard German fire pinging around him. Gurney says about himself, the thing of it is, I don't recall being afraid. They drove into us. This is our mission, and this is what we've got to do. At one point, he said he kind of lost his senses, and he didn't know what to do as he's standing out in the water with his rifle over his head. If I remember the article correctly, his, uh, like the commander of his brigade, or I don't know the terminology, told him, you can die in the water, or you can die on the beach. So he said, all right, I'm going to die on the beach. <laughs> no point in staying here on the water, right? So he went. This was a battle of life and death, and to some degree it has affected the fate of the world. It really has. If Germany wins the war, things are very different. Today, as we look at Numbers chapter 21, we'll be considering four battles. We'll lump three of them together and go through them quickly, so that way we can focus on the fourth battle. So, <coughs> after we've looked at these four battles, I'll just give you some concluding some concluding words. Uh, what is our response to the word of God this morning? All right. So first, I'll just read the three battles that I'm lumping together. Okay. So I'll start in verse 1. This one's verses 1 through 3. This is Israel's battle against Arad and the Canaanites. So chapter 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atherim. He attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. <coughs> if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. And they completely destroyed them in their town. So the place was named Choma. Um, the, the, it's Harem in Hebrew. It's the idea of total destruction. We keep none of it. This is all this all for you. We don't take the spoils of the war. Next battle, verses 21 through 31. This is Israel's battle against the Amorites. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, king of the Amorites, let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside to any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Seems pretty reasonable, I would say. But Sihon would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the wilderness against Israel. When he reached Jehaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, but only as far as the Ammonites, because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. This is important here. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. So Sihon has already taken this land from the Moabites. So this isn't like his land, you know. He took it, and now it's getting taken from him. But he took it from the Moabites. That's important. Verse 27, that is why the poets say, come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's king, or Sihon's 
I'm sorry, let Sihon city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, ablaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, Moab. You are destroyed. People of Shemosh, that's their god, Shemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Israel saying, we've defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites. Heshbon's dominion has been destroyed all the way to Debon. We have demolished them as far as Nophah, which extends to Medeva. Verse 31. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. Now let's look at the third battle here that I'm lumping together. Verses 32 through 35. After Israel had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road toward Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in battle at Edrei. The Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors. And they took possession of, the, of his land. Um, a few comments on these three battles I'd like to make for you. We're just going through this real quickly because we've got something really important to focus on in the second half of the sermon. First, notice that all these battles occurred while Israel was just wandering around the wilderness, right? So why is Israel wandering around the wilderness? Well, God said, here's the promised land. Go and take it. And they said, we don't want to. There's giants and they're scary and we have more fear of them than we have faith in you. So thanks, but no thanks. We'd rather live in the wilderness, even though they've been grumbling the whole time about getting out of the wilderness. Now's their chance to leave the wilderness, and they say, actually, the wilderness is fine. We'll just stay here. And God says, fine, if you want to stay in the wilderness, you will. And so he had this generation wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation that had no faith died. Second, notice that Israel's intact, attacked in each of these encounters. Israel's actually not doing the aggression here. They're just wandering around, but they're so large, nations are terrified of them. So nations kind of overreact, even though Israel's not looking to cause trouble, and they send their armies out, and Israel's like, all right, well, I guess we've got to fight. I mean, you punched me in the face. What, what am I going to do? Like the first one, the Israelites got kidnapped, you know? Like, that's a big deal. You just go and raid another nation and steal their people. Third, Israel wins all these battles, right? This is God giving them victory. This isn't the Israelite military prowess. And fourth, this is important for next week. Remember that Israel defeated the Amorites, and the Amorites had defeated the Moabites. So the Moabites are scared, right? If you beat the dude that beat me, then I can't beat you. That's pretty basic. And that's what chapters 22, 23, and 24 are all about. And Joel will get there next week. Next up is the Moabites. And the Moabites are like, the Amorites beat us, and you beat the Amorites. So we're not going to fight you. We're going to try to destroy you some other way besides militarily. 
And so they hire this sorcerer to come and curse them. But they're not going to fight Israel one-on-one -on -one because they're like, what? Well, that's dumb. We would get destroyed. So this is really important for next, for next week, okay? So those are four things I wanted to mention. So now that we've looked at these, <coughs> these three battles, I want to turn, flip back now, and look at verses 4 through 9, which is another battle. And this is where we're really going to focus. I went through all that just so next week's sermon can be set up and you don't feel like you're lost in a wilderness whenever Balaam starts next week, okay? So now we're going to look at this story of serpents coming and biting people. This is a wild, wild story, okay? Before we read it, I want to give you some background. Um, Gary, if you could actually head back and show people the... the the thing I've created. So I've prepared this sheet, and I hope it pulls up. I didn't. Oh, man. That's just glorious. So I called this, and I got some help from other people, but I, I made this up. And I thought, before we jump into this story about the serpents, this would be helpful to do um, for a few reasons. So I made this document. I call it. Um, roadmap of Israel's sins in the book of Numbers. They could have used a roadmap. They didn't have one, but this is their roadmap of sins. And you can see at the top of the diagram there that they left Sinai with the law, right? So they had the law for one year at Sinai, and now they finally left, and they're just wandering around. And you would think the law and the rules and knowing what God wants from you would help things, but has it helped? No. No. In fact, things seem worse than ever. Like, everywhere they go, they do terribly. Like, there's one thing you can count on Israel to do. It's to do what God says don't do. That's what we're seeing over and over again. And there's seven of them. There's seven of these huge, disastrous sins. And they go together, it seems. So the first and the seventh are red. You see that? Because they go together. And in the first one, it's this really short story. In the first one, Israel grumbles, just we don't even know about what. And so God judges them with fire. In the seventh one, Israel's going to grumble again, and God's going to send fiery serpents to judge them. We'll talk about what a fiery serpent is in a little bit. If you look at the second and the sixth ones, I've colored them green. So here God's people specifically grumble about food and water. So they grumble about food and water in other places. But here, just notice, it goes very nicely together. Two and six, food and water. Like, that's what you need to live. And they're grumbling. The third and the fifth one, which are blue, are explicit attacks on Moses' leadership. You see this? All of them are disrespect to Moses. But it's the third and the fifth that are ex the only time that they explicitly say, Hey, Moses, we don't want you to be leader, at least not by yourself. We're just as good, if not better, than you. And then in the very middle, you get the worst sin of all, right? They reject the promised land. <laughs> They've been wandering around for two years trying to get to this point, And God brings them to the promised land, and they're like, nope. Going to hang out here in the desert. God, you, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. You're just not strong enough, God. And this is the worst sin. It has no counterpart because it just stands off by itself. It's really bad. And I want you to notice that God actually has prescriptions for these sins. And some of these, he says what, what they need, what would have helped. And so for the second sin, you get a prescription. 
God said in chapter 11, verse 29, Moses said, but God said through Moses, Oh, that all God's people had the Holy Spirit. If all of you had the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be grumbling. That's the logic. So what do they need? They need the Holy Spirit. That's the first prescription. They also get another prescription. Look at the fourth sin. He says, chapter 14, verse 11, they need faith in me. They have no faith. If they had faith in me, they wouldn't be afraid of the giants. Fear is lack of faith in God. That's what it is. Oh, if you had faith. And then in chapter 14, 24, he says, but Caleb can enter the promised land because he has a different spirit. What spirit did he have? He had a spirit of faith. You can't enter the promised land. You don't have faith. You can enter the promised land. You have a different spirit. Spirit of what? A spirit of faith. The Holy Spirit working in him, and he has faith because of it. So you have all these prescriptions. And then you get to the sixth sin, I think it is? Chapter 20, verse 12. Right here. Oh, I didn't put the prescriptions up here. I'm sorry. So it's a good thing I'm going through them. And he gives these prescriptions. And the six, for the sixth sin, when they grumble about water, the prescription is faith, once again. So you're seeing this over and over. What do you need, Israel? Faith. What do you need? Holy Spirit. What do you need? A different spirit. What do you need? Faith. Well, with that as a background, now, now that we know what God wants, we can start to make some sense out of this story, okay? So Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. I'm going to read verses 4 through 5. Gary, you can just click off of that now. Thank you so much, Gary. That was awesome. I'm going to read verses 4 through 5. And we'll see. This is our fourth battle. And you might not think it's a battle, but it is a battle. And I'll show you how at the end. Okay? They, that's Israel, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we hate this miserable food. Now, you've heard this before, right? Um, This is like a broken record, a skipping CD. Why'd you bring us out in the wilderness to die? You're a bad person, Moses. You set us free, and we'll never forgive you for that. I mean, that's that's what's going on here. And they're taking it out on God. And what it reminds me of is, if you see in verse 4, it specifically says they grew impatient. This is like either when you were a kid or you have kids, and you're like hour four into the road trip, and your kids say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? It doesn't stop. Are we there yet? Our kids actually do a great job with this. But you've all heard of this, and you've all seen it, and you probably did it when you were a kid. Are we there yet? And for Israel, the answer is no, and you never will be there. This generation will die. And they've been wandering around for who knows how many years, and they're just tired of it. They have grown impatient of being in the wilderness. And... When the kid says, are we there yet? And they don't get an answer that they like, they immediately grumble. Can I have a snack? Can I please have a snack? 
And impatience gives way to grumbling, doesn't it? And this isn't just kids in a car. This is us, and this is you, and this is me, and this is Israel. <laughs> Here they are, year who knows what on this road trip to death, and they're tired and impatient and grumbling again. I want you to look at this verse carefully, especially verse 5. There's something you need to see in it. I'll read this time from the ESV because the ESV gets it right. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is a good translation here. Listen to this. There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. It's the same word in Hebrew. Some translations say, we hate this bread, there's no food. It's the same word in Hebrew. There's no food, and we hate this worthless food. You see what's going on here? God has been giving them food for who knows how many years now. And they look to God and they say, where's the food? Oh, that? That's not food. That doesn't count as food. It's only kept us alive for 30 years in the wilderness. God's like, what are you eating? I don't know, but it's not food. This is a blessing. This is food. And they've turned food into a non-food. They've turned their blessing into a curse. Because they're looking at it with the wrong perspective. They're so ungrateful that they are not able to see God's provision. You see that? That's what's going on here. We want food, but not this food, because this is not food. So that's Israel's sin. Now let's see God's judgment, okay? Verse 6. God is going to judge this impatience and this grumbling and this ingratitude, this lack of gratefulness. So I'll read verse 6 once again from the ESV. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Okay? Now the NIV, if you have that, it says venomous serpents. Um, at least the newest translation does. Fiery serpents is a good translation, though. Here's how it works out. Um, I've never been bit by a venomous serpent before. Thank you, Jesus. But if I had, I had a feeling it would probably feel like my leg was on fire. That's why the Hebrews called these things fiery serpents. Like, there's serpents, and then there's fiery serpents, as in venomous serpents. And so the camp has been flooded with venomous serpents. In fact, fiery serpents, which just sounds extra dreadful, okay? Fiery serpents. They bite with fire, and they kill you, okay? And that's exactly what happens. They bit the people, verse 6 says, so that many people of Israel, Israel died. So... What must they do to find life in the midst of death? All right? That's, would that be on your mind? That'd be on my mind. Like, I'm running around watching my feet, right? I'm not looking up to the sky. I'm not looking to God right now. I'm looking at my feet. And I'm like, running away, running away. Probably look like I'm doing the hokey pokey, right? Because there's fiery serpents all around my feet. And I'm like, what do I do to live? And so, as always... Verse 7, they run to Moses and they say, help, we're sorry. I mean, we've seen this so many times, haven't we? So verse 7, let me read it. Israel's repentance here. The people came to Moses and said, 
We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. <coughs> now, this is great that Moses would pray for the people. I'm glad Moses didn't hold grudges. <laughs> Moses hold, held grudges. He could have just said, nope, I'm not going to pray this time. But Moses prays because he has a forgiving heart, and God has a forgiving heart too. God forgives these people for the seventh time. The seventh time. And it's not like one guy sinning. It's the seventh time the entire nation has completely lost its mind. All right? So God gives what might be the strangest advice in the Bible. Here. This is peculiar. Verses 8 and 9. So Moses says, God, heal the people. Save the people. And this is God's advice. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and they will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, before I describe how odd this prescription is, because we've seen other prescriptions that make a lot of sense. Like, Israel, you need the Holy Spirit. Check. Like, that makes sense. Israel, you need faith. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Israel, you need your leader to go make a serpent out of metal and hang it up on a pole, and you need to stare at it. That's what you need to do. It's like, what? Before we get into how odd this is, First, there's a word, another translation issue. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a single English translation that does a good job at this. So the word pole in verse 8 and verse 9 should not be translated pole. It's not a pole. Not really. So the Hebrew word here is a battle standard. A battle standard, which is not something we use often. A battle standard was a pole, yes, but it wasn't just any pole. It had a specific function. At the top of the pole oftentimes hung a flag. You might have seen these before. You can look this word up throughout the Old Testament, and you see things like, go up on a hill and raise the battle standard so that people will live when the army comes. A battle standard is the place of safety when a war is on the way. Or when a war's already broken out. You get a tall pole and you put a flag on it that everyone can see so that when the army's coming and the battle's raging and everyone's disoriented, you know where to go to live. We need to regroup over there on that hill. I see the battle standard. Let's go. Or the Babylonians are coming from the north. Raise a battle standard on the, on the walls of Jerusalem so everyone knows, hurry up and get in the city before you die. The battle standard is where you go to live when a war has broken out. Okay? It's a place of safety, and it, it's, really, it's a shame that they translate it pole here. It's not a pole. It's a battle standard. He's saying, hang the serpent on the place of safety and tell them if they look at it, they'll live. Jeremiah 4.6, raise the signal, literally, raise the battle standard to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay, for I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. 
And here, just a moment, you see the mercy of God. Okay? God is judging them, right? And yet God gives them a place of safety while he's judging them. Isn't that incredible? Like, you sin, so I'll judge you. And yet I'm so loving, I will still show you how to avoid my judgment. It's amazing how gracious God is. So, Moses must go and he must hang this serpent up on a battle standard. The place of safety when war is broken out. And if they look to it, they'll, they'll live. Okay? And this is a very odd prescription. I, tend, I was wondering, what if you had someone who wasn't so holy and righteous? Like Moses is holy and righteous. And so he hears this and he just does it. But if you had someone who was more normal, I think the conversation would go a little differently. So to help you realize how odd this is, <clears throat> random person, God, please save your people. They're sorry for what they've done. Take the snakes away. Okay, here's what you need to do. First, go and make a snake out of metal. Um, person says, I've never done that before. I don't think that'll be a quick process. You sure that's what you want me to go do right now? God says, yes. Make a snake out of metal and then go and hang it on a battle standard. Um, you want me to hang a metal snake on a pole. That's your plan. Yes, exactly. Then tell everyone who gets bit by it to stare at it. Are you aware, God, that we don't want to see any more snakes? They are judgment. We hate them. They kill us. They don't heal us. And if we look at one on a pole made of metal, we'll be all right. Yes, just look at it. So you want them to look at a snake on a pole. That's the plan. And that would be the end of the conversation, probably. I mean, are you seeing how strange this is? Sometimes we hear these stories and we get used to them. Do you realize how crazy this is? This is a strange remedy. But I hope that you see what is actually going on here. Remember, since chapter 14, when they rejected the promised land, God has been interested in two things. Live by the Holy Spirit and live by God. Numbers 14, 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? Numbers 20, 12. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy, you will not enter the land. God longs for Israel to trust him. And now he is practically forcing Israel to trust him. You see that? This is a crazy bit of advice because it's supposed to be crazy. God is forcing them to choose between faith or death. You can do this crazy thing which implies trust, doesn't it? Or you can die. Those are your options. You have two options, Israel. Look at the serpent or die. In other words, trust me or perish. That's it. 
You have no other choice. Without faith in me, you die. That's the point. That's why God goes out of his way to create this elaborate, weird plan, I think. That's the point. You've not been trusting me for a long time now, and you know what I wanted this whole time? I wanted faith. And so now, you've got no option. If you don't look, you won't live. And that's our passage. What a peculiar story. But this is not just a sermon about ancient Israelites. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, God's judgment on Israel's sins in the wilderness happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the, ends of the, the end of the ages has fallen. Paul looks at these stories and says they're written for us. Isn't that interesting? So, I'd like to make two comments now. How do we respond to this story? <coughs> First, we see the need to live by the Holy Spirit. And second, we see the need to place our faith in Jesus. That's what we need to do in response to this. We need to live by the Holy Spirit and place our faith in Jesus. Why did Israel fa fall under God's judgment to begin with? Impatience, lack of gratefulness, and grumbling, right? And we've already seen what God's prescription is for these. The Holy Spirit. In other words, if you were to have lived by the Spirit, you would not have grumbled. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, not grumbling, peace, patience, not impatience, right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22. This is what the Spirit produces in us. So who avoids judgment? The one who lives by the Spirit will avoid judgment. This is a big theme throughout the whole Bible, actually. I want to focus in on how if we are living by the Spirit, we will practice patience. Focus on that first, okay? So I was thinking this past week about what patience is, and I had this really good thought. I came up with a rhyme, and I was so proud of it, but then I kind of realized I heard it from someone else first. So um, I'll give you the rhyme, okay? And this is not original to me. So um, when are we impatient? When we're in a place we don't want to be going at a pace we don't want to go. And that's exactly what happened in the story, right? Israel's in a place they don't want to be, the wilderness, and they're going at a pace they don't want to go. You're in the wrong place going the wrong pace. And when that happens, we get impatient, don't we? I mean, it's those two things combined. I don't want to be here, and I don't want it to take this long. Maybe I'd be willing to be here if it didn't take this long. And maybe I'd be willing to do it if it didn't take this long, but no. And then you grumble and then you, you get angry, right? I was trying to think, what are some places that we are that we don't want to be? Some of the places we are that we don't want to be are work, right? And I don't mean like Tuesday afternoon. I mean like in general, like I don't like this job, 
So look for another one, but do it rejoicing, right? Do it rejoicing the whole time. Or for me, past month, allergy season. I don't like this place. I don't like this place known as allergy season. Um, I've Googled, when will allergy season end? I'm trying to figure this out. I, I, want, I want a date, you know? <laughs> like, like that can be given. Um, here's one. You got a long row of cars, right? And it's red light. And the green arrow turns. And the guy up front takes too long to start. And then everyone takes off like a rocket. And it turns red. And you're the front car. And what are you thinking? Bah! Whoever that guy was at the front of the line, if he just would have been more like me and been ready, this wouldn't have happened. Right? Traffic, right? Traffic. This is one of those places where we don't follow the Spirit's leading, when we're not living by the Spirit. Um, when your children are extra obedient for a, an extra disobedient, oh, haste today for obedience all the time, right? I'm sure that's what God says about me. Haste today when Brian's always obedient. Um, when your children are extra disobedient for a season, longer than you wish it were, um, we grow impatient. And this isn't just like when they're five or six or seven. Like, go on for a long, long, long time, right? And we grow impatient, very impatient. And so I want this to stop. Why won't my kid do this? Why won't my daughter do that? Why won't my son go in the way I showed him? Um, so we have all these places that we just don't want to be, right? And the, the only way to handle them is to live by the Holy Spirit, which is done by just asking for God's help. When you feel impatience creeping up in you, that is a sign you're not living by the Spirit. And yes, I believe that if you trust in Jesus truly and fully, he will keep you until the end. He will. I believe that those who belong to him stay belonging to him their whole life. And yet, the Bible teaches those who do not live by the Spirit will face judgment. I don't know how to sort that out. I'm just telling you the Bible teaches both. Those who belong to Jesus will belong to him the whole way. And those who do not live by the Spirit will not pass through judgment successfully. So live by the Spirit. Impatience is so serious. And do not say, don't pray for patience, because God will answer that prayer. Don't say that. Do you want to be a patient person? Or do you want to live your whole life impatient? I've heard so many people say this. Don't pray for patience, because God will answer that prayer. I said, please answer that prayer. Anything to make me less patient, because when I'm impatient, I am not happy. I want to be happy. Make me patient. Secondly, something to look at here. Gratitude. By the Holy Spirit alone can we be grateful. I'll say less about this than patience. But you see what Israel did, right? Israel is given food, and they say, we have no food. We don't like this food, and we have no food. And the very thing they wanted was the thing they had. And yet they wouldn't say it because they didn't want to give God any credit because they were angry at him. This is what's going on. This is terrible. And it, it reminds me that oftentimes the thing that is giving you a struggle 
The source of your struggle is your blessing, okay? The Israelites were sick and tired of manna, absolutely sick and tired of it, and that was their very blessing. It was. Tell a story. A friend named Jeremy, love this guy, Joel and I know him from seminary, and he had a rough first two years in seminary. He moved every year he was there, all four years. He moved every summer. Um, his wife couldn't get a good job. They weren't meeting the bills, and their savings were just dwindling. And he just felt like he was dying in school. He wasn't the brightest guy. He was the funniest guy, that's for sure. But he wasn't the brightest guy, so he had to study harder. And not only did he have to study harder, but his job, he had to work more hours than other students did. He had three kids, and they were all older. And it was just hard. His wife, to help make ends meet, was a mystery shopper for pizza places because that's all she could find to do. And the perk was not only did you get 25 bucks per review or whatever, but you got a free meal, you know? So this is how they're doing it. They're eating pizza like 15 times a night. I mean, 15 times a month. That's, that's all they got, you know? It's hard. And after two years, he's just feeling like he's done. And then finally he says, he tells, he says, brothers, talking to us, Christian brothers in his class, he says, I realize I've been like the children of Israel in the wilderness. And I said, dear God, I want to know you more. I want to follow you. I want to trust in you. And then God answered that prayer. And when he answered, I've been grumbling the whole time. My struggle was my blessing. That was the way God was inviting me in to know him better. And rather than grumbling about it, I should have said, thank you. I'm learning to lean on See, those things that make us ungrateful and bitter are actually the things that we should be grateful for. This is God's blessing to us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Secondly, we need to live by faith in Jesus. It was not just the Israelites who must choose between trusting in God or death. These are our only options as well, friends, brothers, sisters. These are our only options, faith in Jesus or death. You see, through your sin, you have declared war on the Lord. This is what happened in our passage. God perceives your grumbling as an assault on his character. Because it is. God perceives your impatience as an attack on his sovereignty, because it is. God perceives your doubts as an accusation against his faithfulness, because they are. You don't doubt perfectly faithful people. When you doubt someone, you're suggesting that they're not trustworthy. And this is what Israel did. They declared war on the Lord. And that's why a battle standard shows up. And God says, you want safety in the war? There's only one way to find safety whenever you declare war on me. And it's my way. Any other way leads to death. You are the Nazi regime. You have overstepped your boundaries and your pride. And you have overestimated your moral compass. And God is the allied troops. And he has more boats than you can imagine right off the shore. And he will invade at the end of history. He will. 
He will defeat evil. He will purge this world. He will destroy all opposition. The war will end one day. Judgment is going to rain down like no storm you have ever seen. And so we are left in the same place that the Israelites were. So where do we look? Where do we look? What do we do? We're sorry, but now what? And the key text here is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10, 11, and 12. And I'll read those verses for you. In that day, the root of Jesse, that's another name for Jesus, the root of Jesse. He came from David, who came from Jesus. Isaiah eleven ten. In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, will stand as a battle standard for the peoples. The nations, the nations, that's you, will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Oh, to make it to that place. In that day, the Lord will reach his hand a second time and reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria and Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt and Cush and Elam and Babylon from Hamath and the islands of the Mediterranean. That was the world as they knew it. He's saying, in that day, when the Messiah is a battle standard, the whole world will be drawn to him. I will be lifted up and draw all men to myself. Verse 12, he will raise a banner. God will raise a battle standard, literally, for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. This is what's going on. We as humans have waged war against God. And God says, I'm coming and I'm going to destroy every one of you. But there is a battle standard. There is a place of safety. It's the root of Jesse. You've got to go to David's greater son. You've got to go to the Messiah. You've got to look to Jesus. And Isaiah anticipates a day when God would send a new battle standard, a new place of safety. And his name is Jesus. All right? He was lifted up on a cross. And if you look to him, you'll live. And when you look to him, you are looking to your judgment. Just like the serpents were their judgment and they had to look at their judgment, Jesus is your judgment. Yes, he's your salvation. But how does he save you? He saves you by getting judged for you. He was judged on the cross. That's what you deserve. Look to your judgment and say, that should have been me. It should have been me. When you see him on the cross, you have a place of safety. The cross is your battle standard. He was judged for you. That's why Isaiah goes on to say in Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Don't you see that though we are the guilty ones, Jesus took, his, took the judgment on himself. So what should you do? Well, you know the answer. You look. You look and you live. God doesn't care about your works. He just wants you to do this. That's it. Like, that's, that's what he asks of you. Look to me. Just look. Which is why Zechariah 12.10, very similar Hebrew says, they look to me, the one whom they pierced. Very similar in the Hebrew language there. You look to the one who was pierced. Zechariah 12.10, and you escape the judgment of the coming war. And it's your only option. There is one way to avoid judgment in the wilderness, and it's look to the judgment. And there's one way to avoid judgment on the world. You look to Jesus. 
going over, but here's a little riddle. You're up against the cliff, and there's a fire coming at you, and you got matches in your pocket. If you go off the cliff, you're going to die for sure. What do you do? You set the ground on fire beneath you. That's what you do. So that way the fire will go out from you. And the burning inferno will not kill you because the ground has already been burned up. That's what Jesus is. Judgment fell on him. The fire has fallen on Jesus. And if you are where he is, you will escape the fire of judgment. The fiery serpents won't get you. The fire from the Lord won't get you. If you stand where he stood, if you stand where judgment landed, you will live. Look to him. Don't trust in yourself. You're bitten. You're dead. And you're, you're not going to make it. You have one choice. Christian and non-Christian alike, you have one choice. Look to him for the first time or keep looking to him. But if you look away and you turn away from him, I tell you what, as surely as the Allied forces took Hitler down, God will take you down and you will not survive. But praise the Lord. That is not our fear, is it? Praise the Lord that Jesus was burned so that we might live. Jesus has taken your place. You're going to perish in the wilderness. You have one hope. You have one hope in this wilderness of your life. And it's Jesus. And I'm so glad that the God who judges us is the same God who loves us enough to show us the place of safety. Father in heaven, we love you. We have no other choice. How can we not? We look to the standard. We look to him who was pierced, who was raised as a standard. This is why John chapter 3 verse 14 says, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he was. The Son of Man was lifted up on that cross and exalted to show that he is the highest and greatest of all. And we look to him. We don't look to our works. We don't look to our abilities. We just look to him and we don't take our eyes off. Because he's, he's all we've got. We're bitten and we're dead apart from him. So Father, we thank you that in Christ we live. And we will live forever with him. In your name we pray. Amen.